Now, I know what everybody's thinking seeing me up here on stage today. I've already had a lot of people ask me about it before the service, and no, these are not new glasses. I've had them for a few years already, so that's not the change. Why did I shave my head? That is the question you're all asking yourselves, and there's a very reasonable answer to that, and uh, it's because uh, I'm doing it in support of my mom. Uh, so my, my mom has over the, oh man, this didn't take long. Uh, over the past couple months, she's been uh, going through chemotherapy treatments for cancer. She's got a very optimistic prognosis. We're very uh, hopeful, prayerfully hopeful as a family that this will be her path to wellness. Um, but it is a hard path in the meantime. And uh, so I am trying to do what I can to help support her. Uh, I didn't have the courage to go the full Robert Hyde, so instead... Instead, I settled for the Danny Mackay. <laughs> she appreciated it nonetheless. We've been talking a lot about unlikely heroes, and I just want to say that my mom is my hero. Um, just the amount of faith and trust in God and the peace that she's had in a difficult time. It's something I'll never forget. I look up to her a lot. I have another hero here today, and that's my wife, Karen. She doesn't know I'm talking about her, or I plan on talking about her. I was doing a little bit of mental math, and over the last seven years of Karen's life, she has been in some stage of pregnancy almost half that time. <laughs> I have it on good authority that it's not easy to be pregnant. I don't know. I'm a guy. But I've picked up a few clues along the way in uh, those last seven years. Um, and it's just reminded me how much of an act of love that that is from mother to child. And even, or maybe even especially last time around, when we lost our daughter, Selah, at 34 weeks, how much of an act of love that that was. I share all of this because we got news at our last uh, doctor's appointment that Karen is going to have an appointment to be induced this Thursday. Yes, we can clap. I think that's a good thing. She seems pretty happy about it. So we are hopeful, Lord willing, that next time we gather with you as a church family, we can introduce you to our brand new baby boy. So your prayers towards that end would be greatly appreciated. So there's some of my heroes, but enough about me. This isn't about me, it's not about my family, but it's nice to be able to share what's going on in my life and the lessons that God is teaching me as we go. Uh, but we are going through this uh, sermon series, Unlikely Heroes, to prove that no matter what you're facing in life, we're just ordinary people who God chooses to use to do extraordinary things. And we've shared a few yearbook photos to let you know just how ordinary we all are. Here's an ordinary kind of guy right there. Who do you think that fella is? Brian Bourne. Stand up, Brian. Let us see. There you go. You know what, you look, I see a lot of Stephanie in that picture. She, your daughter looks a lot like you, which is a compliment to her. Then we have this. Look at that smoldering gaze. Is that James Dean? Who is this guy? That's Al James. Al, are you here this morning? Can you stand too? You can stand. Stand up, Al. Right on. And last but most certainly not least, check out that afro. <laughs> who, we know who that is, right? Al, are you here? Al Bailey, are you here this morning? Could you, could you stand? We've made them all stand. I, I love the look. Please let me be the first one to officially say, please bring back the afro. <laughs> 
I almost thought of getting a T-shirt printed, "Bring back the Afro," but you no. Know, I want to stay Jeanette's friend for a longer time than that. It's wonderful. Thank you for submitting that. We've been reminded about this week after week through our pictures and through the stories of Old Testament characters that God doesn't choose extra special people to do extra special things. He chooses ordinary people. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so we understand that no matter where we are in life, God will give us through the the power of his spirit what we need in order to follow him and encourage other people to do the same. So for the rest of the time we have together here this morning, we're going to look at the story of Ruth, found in the book of Ruth. And uh, we've called her the redeemed widow, someone who was on the fringes of society, that was kind of cast out of the culture of that time that God used to bring hope to all people. Well, the the story of Ruth is a beautiful and compelling story. And it might be a story that's very familiar to many of you, but I'm sure there's a few of us here that maybe have never heard the story before or need a reminder. And so we're actually going to listen to uh, someone remind us of the story of Ruth. Probably. I will tell the story of a roof. Oh no, not you. Yes, me, Chester Wiggett, master of the popsicle stick of puppet. And now, the story of a roof. Once upon a time, there was a woman named Ruth. She wasn't an Israelite. She was from Moab, a country Israel didn't like very much. But Ruth, she married an Israelite. As our story begins, Ruth, her Israelite husband, and her husband's mother were all living in the Moab because there was a famine in Israel. A famine? You mean no food? Right, and no food. So there they are in the Moab when, oh no, Ruth's husband dies. I don't know what happened. Maybe he got hit by a bus. I don't think they had buses back then. Okay, maybe he got hit by a cow. Chester. A goat? Chester. A near-tempered iguana? Chester. Anyway, he's dead. He's gone. No more husband. Now, Ruth's mother-in-law, her name is Naomi, she doesn't have a husband either. He died a while back. Probably another iguana. Chester! Or something. Naomi doesn't really belong in the Moab. She's an Israelite. So as soon as the famine ends, she decides to go back to Israel. Of course, she is old and has no husband and no money. So she'll have to beg for food. Her life will be sad. Well, guess what? Ruth doesn't want that to happen. She loves Naomi. So even though Moab is her home, Ruth says to Naomi, I will come with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. (laughs) Isn't it beautiful? I'm telling you, that part makes me cry every time. Yeah, that's really something. It gets you right in the gut. Anyway, this amazing Ruth, she leaves her home and goes to Israel with Naomi to take care of her. Every day she follows the workers in the fields to pick up little bits of grain to to share with Naomi. Oh, I'm losing it, but... 
don't get this. This is the best part. So she's picking up bits of grain in a field that belongs to a wealthy man named Boaz, who happens to be related to Naomi's old husband, the one that died in the iguana accident. I don't think he was killed by an iguana. Whatever. Anyway, Boaz sees Ruth into the field and hears about what she's done for Naomi. He hears about her great love for her mother-in-law. And get this, he falls in love with Ruth. Wonderful Ruth. And, and Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. And Boaz takes care of Ruth and takes care of Naomi, her mother-in-law. And everyone is happy and they burst into song. Ever since I saw you, I knew that I loved you and will be together, always and forever. Chester? Always, always. Chester, I don't think they burst into song. The Book of Ruth is not a musical. Well, it should be. So what's... So you got all that? <laughs> Should be a musical. It's a wonderful, compelling story. And if you want to follow along, we're going to go into it in a bit greater detail than that, iguanas and all. And uh, you can follow along in the book of Ruth. Every good story has uh, a distinct and a unique setting to it. And as we pick up the story of Ruth, we realize that it is in Israel during the time of the judges. In fact, many of the stories that we've highlighted in our series, Unlikely Heroes, have come from the time of the judges, uh, where Israel had this kind of this uh, cycle where they would fall away from God, and, and, and then God would, would punish them often with other nations coming and fighting with them or taking them over, and then and Israel would cry out, and God would hear their cry and raise up a judge to deliver his people. And then all of a sudden, you see that cycle happening again and again. And it is most likely during one of the downturns of that cycle that we pick up the story of Ruth, because we hear that there was a severe famine in the land of Israel, specifically in Bethlehem, where uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech uh, hail from. And so because there is this famine, and Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons leave from Bethlehem to go to the neighboring country of Moab in order to find uh, a better life, more readily available food and prosperity. Now, they settle in Moab, and they stay there for about 10 years, hoping that their life will be better. During their time there, both of the sons of Elimelech and Naomi marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. Now, we should pause really quickly to recognize a couple of things. One, Moab was not friends with Israel. They were actually sworn enemies. And secondly, God had given specific instructions to the Israelites not to intermarry with the neighboring countries around them. They were to be God's chosen people, set apart and holy. And so even this marriage between the sons of Naomi and Elimelech and, and Ruth and Orpah, the Moabite women, was something that, that most likely God did not approve of. But they were there for 10 years, and during that time, tragedy strikes. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, the patriarch of the family, dies. And then shortly thereafter, Ruth and Orpah, their husbands, Naomi's sons, they die as well. Now, we don't know the cause of death. It could have been an ill-tempered iguana. My money's not on that. Uh, but, but we don't know the cause of death. But regardless of what happened, we know that this is a very tragic start of the story. 
And before we jump further on, we need to just recognize that this is something that would be an incredibly difficult thing to deal with. That in a short span of a few years, Naomi has lost her husband and both of her children. That is an incredible, mind-boggling tragedy. And so we need to put ourselves in Naomi's shoes just for a second to think of, even just for a minute, how that might feel, and just to realize that she is somebody who, who has a very raw heart, a very raw heart. And so because of the loss of her husband and her sons, that family, the three widows, have no ability to take care of themselves. They cannot fend for themselves in the land of Moab. During that time, women did not have the same type of opportunity as men did. Their social status was quite a bit lower. They couldn't own the land. They couldn't get those types of jobs that they needed in order to be provided for or to provide for themselves. So Naomi hatches a plan. She is going to return to the the nation of Israel, back to her homeland, to see if she can be provided for. And she encourages her two daughters-in-law to return back to their mother's households in Moab so that they may also be provided for there. Now, both Orpah and Ruth are young, and they have the ability to remarry again. Naomi doesn't have that luxury. Her years have passed, and so she knows uh, that she uh, has a slim hope, but she desires for her daughters-in-law, whom she loves greatly, that they would have the ability to remarry, and so she urges them to go home to Moab. At first, both daughters refuse Naomi, and they say, no, we're staying with you. We're sticking together as a family. And so Naomi, again, for a second time, says, no, please, do what is best for you. Go home to Moab and remarry. And at the second urging, then Orpah decides very tearfully that she will take Naomi up on that offer. And she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she returns home to Moab. But Ruth, Ruth remains determined and Ruth stays. We actually see that word in verse 18 of chapter 1. Ruth was determined. She was stubbornly loyal. And it is in this uh, desire to stay with Naomi that we learn a little bit about Ruth's character. We know that she is a loyal and committed person, even at her own expense. So remember, the reason Naomi wants her to go is not because she wants to be parted. She wants Ruth to go back to Moab so that she can have a chance at a better life. So by saying no to Naomi and by staying with her, Ruth is actually costing herself a huge opportunity. She is, she is saying no to the most direct path to a better life. She is saying, even if I live in, in economic poverty, even if I can never get remarried, that is still okay. It cost me something, but I will stay committed to you. That is the message that she gives Naomi, and we learn about her character in that way. But it wasn't just a commitment to Naomi that we see here from Ruth. We actually see that she has forsaken the gods, the false pagan gods of Moab in her childhood, and she has converted and is committed to the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. We see this um, beautiful uh, kind of recognition of that in verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter of Ruth. Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. So for Ruth, going all in with Naomi wasn't just about Naomi. It was also about following God wholeheartedly. 
The temptation of going back to Moab was, again, to go back to that old way of life, those old gods, and Ruth has no interest in doing that. So together, Naomi and Ruth make that long trek back to Israel, back to the town of Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. And when she gets back there, everyone recognizes her, and they're chatting. Is that Naomi? Did she finally come back after all these these years, after a decade of being away? And we see here, upon return, just how bitter and heartbroken Naomi is at the tragedy that befell her. This we see in verses 20 and 21. The women were asking, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, which means bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So again, we don't need to judge Naomi here. We need to be moved at the level of loss that she has endured. She, she, she just feels like God has ripped everything that she loved away from her, except for maybe this loyal daughter-in-law, Ruth. And she wants her name now to be called bitterness. That's the level of, of, of loss that Naomi feels. And for both of Naomi and Ruth, hope she seems in short supply. Even coming back home, hope is, is a long way off. You see, we need to recognize that uh, when we look at the character and person of Ruth, when she went back to Bethlehem and to Israel, she had three strikes against her in the society of that time. The first strike was, and I've mentioned this briefly, she was a woman. And as a woman, she just did not have the same opportunities as men. This was a very patriarchal society. And so women couldn't own that land. They couldn't have those jobs. They were shorthanded to begin with. That was strike one. Secondly, she was a widow. So in order for women to be provided for, it was assumed that they would find a good husband. And the husband could own that land and have that job and then provide for his wife and family. So as a widow, she lost that opportunity. That was strike number two. And thirdly, Ruth was a foreigner. Strike three. She was not an Israelite. She was not one of the chosen people. And in fact, she was not just any old foreigner. She came from the country of Moab, a sworn enemy of Israel. We talked about how during the time of Judges, there would often, God would send foreign nations to come and to to discipline Israel. And Moab was one of those nations. They were not friends. So she had three strikes against her. Ruth finds herself in a position where she is truly unable to help herself. She is a social outcast. She's put on the margins of society, and she cannot do anything in her own power to help herself. She is in need of saving. She is in need of redemption. But this is just where the story begins to get good. Ruth was sent out by Naomi to go and glean in the fields during harvest time. We're in harvest time here right now, and it's wonderful to see everybody out in the fields and getting the crops off the field, but it was quite a bit different during the time of the judges in Israel. Gleaning was a very common practice where uh, women, uh, often widows and the less fortunate, would follow those who were harvesting the fields, and they would take the extras and the leftovers to bring them home for themselves. And this was not just a a circumstance, it was actually... uh, Um, commanded by God. In Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, we see the commandment in the law of Moses where farmers and landowners were commanded to intentionally, intentionally leave some good grain behind so that the widows and the orphans and the less fortunate would have enough to sustain themselves. So gleaning was a very common, even commanded practice. And this is what Ruth was doing, going in the fields with other young women and, and other widows and taking what was left over. 
And then our story hits a lot of rather significant circumstances or maybe coincidences that, that, that maybe is, is, is not really a coincidence at all. Because as Ruth was gleaning in the fields, she just happens to come across the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a close relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and who just happens to catch sight of Ruth and say, hey, who is she? <laughs> Now, in any other walk of life, maybe we can believe in those coincidences, but as we uh, come to the scripture, we know that this is actually an example of God's providence at work. Remember, Ruth needed some divine intervention to make her situation better. She couldn't do it on her own. She needed God's help, and she got it. And so Boaz is coming, and he's checking in on his fields, and he's seeing how his workers are doing. He's saying, hey, the Lord bless you. How's it going? And then he sees Ruth. And he says, who is that? And the workers tell Boaz all about Ruth. And he is immediately drawn to her. And he goes and he talks to Ruth and he offers his protection from assault for her. He offers uh, good gleaning opportunities, better than any other fields can provide. And he gives her water to drink as she goes. So Boaz is being extremely generous. What was his reasons? Was Ruth just a good looker? Was that all this was about? Thankfully, the story gives us the details of why Boaz was so generous to Ruth. And we find his reasoning in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And Ruth asks just before this, Why have I found favor in your eyes? Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So now we see a bit of the character of Boaz because he's not generous to her because she's a good-looking, vulnerable person. No, he is generous because he respects and he admires the loyalty and the commitment that Ruth has shown to her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, and to her God, the one true God of Israel. That is what is attracting Boaz to Ruth. That is the reason for his generosity. And at mealtime, Boaz again shows that he can go above and beyond in the case of Ruth. And he invites her to his table, to his table, letting her eat her fill. In fact, so much food that he sends her home with a doggy bag. Here, take this. I don't need it. Go home with some extra food. Now, this was absolutely scandalous. Because remember who Ruth is. She is a widowed woman from Moab. So for Boaz, a well-to-do Israelite businessman, a landowner, someone who's well-respected in that society, for him to invite a woman like Ruth, an outcast, to his own personal table was enough to start a scandal. This was something that was just not done. You didn't rub shoulders with people like that. You for sure didn't invite them to your table. Boaz, don't you know any better? Don't you know how to make yourself look good and keep up with the social conventions of the time? This was generosity that might even cost Boaz some of his reputation. Yet he did this for Ruth. And then as she goes, he gives her more standing orders to come in and to get extra wheat even as she gleans. Anytime, don't go to any other field. Stay here with me. I will take care with you, of you. So Ruth has quite a whirlwind experience with Boaz and all this generosity. And she hurries home to tell Naomi, her mother, the good news. And Naomi is amazed at all that Ruth is able to bring home. But she is even more amazed when she finds out, she asks, who is this guy? 
Who in the world was so generous to you? Ruth says his name was Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz, he is a relative of mine, of Elimelech. He is one of our family's redeemers. So we need to be aware as we read this story why that word redeemer is important. Because in the old covenant and the old law, there was this role given called kinsman redeemer. And this was a part of the law in which God instituted uh, a role to play where if there was a family in need or a family in trouble, a family that couldn't help themselves, that someone could step in and intervene and redeem the family name. The kinsman redeemer could do three things. First, he could redeem a family member sold into slavery. So if for any reason someone uh, was sold into indentured servitude, then that family member could buy them back and to free them, to redeem them to freedom. Secondly, a kinsman redeemer could redeem land sold by a relative in economic hardship. You see, if, if a relative had to sell the land to a complete stranger, then the next generations of that family wouldn't have access to the land. So the kinsman redeemer had the first opportunity to purchase the land so that it could be held in trust. It could be given to the future generations and not leave that family. So that land could continue to provide for the family, even though that, was in hard, that they were in hardship. And this is one of the roles that Naomi is desiring for Boaz to play. And lastly, a kinsman redeemer had the opportunity to redeem the family name through the practice of a virate marriage. And we see this outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, there's probably no practice that might be more dissimilar to what we expect today than levirate marriage. And I don't want us to have a misunderstanding of what this means. So just to sketch it out briefly, what happened was if there was a situation like this where uh, someone was married and then her husband died and she could no longer be provided for by that husband, then her uh, late husband's brother or close relative would have the opportunity to take her hand in marriage. In fact, he was expected to take her hand in marriage in order that she would continue to be provided for and the family could continue to sustain itself and that future generations could be provided for as well. Uh, so this was something that, uh, that was done uh, with the good of the woman in mind. And we need to always make sure that we understand that. This was for their benefit. It was a practice and a law instituted by God to make sure as much as possible that people didn't have to find themselves in the pinch that Naomi and Ruth were in. They needed to have someone to redeem them. And Boaz, as we're told in the book of Ruth, was a close enough relative to play the role of kinsman redeemer under the law of God for his chosen people. So Naomi knows now that there is a path forward for Ruth to have a good life. And so she gives Ruth some, uh, she gives Ruth some instructions and says, okay, uh, clearly you've caught the attention of Boaz. Clearly you love and respect his generosity. Uh, he is someone who can redeem us. You need to go and take the initiative. You need to make your intentions known. So she senses, Naomi senses a God-given opportunity and tells Ruth, okay, Boaz is going down to the threshing floor. They're going to celebrate harvest. They're going to eat and drink and be merry. So what I want you to do, Ruth, I want you to put on your best dress. I want you to take your perfume and smell really good. And then I want you to go and let Boaz know how you feel about him. And so Ruth does all that Naomi instructs her to do. And sure enough, Boaz goes and he eats and his drinks and he does so until the Bible tells us his heart was merry. So uh, Boaz is in a pretty good spot. He's feeling pretty good and a little bit sleepy. And so he goes and finds a place on the threshing floor and he lies down and he sleeps. And then Ruth approaches him as he sleeps, uncovers his feet and lays down at his feet. 
So I know sometimes the Bible's a little bit cryptic where it, it, it says some things that don't seem straightforward and it really means that there was something, I don't know, kind of, you know, there, there's no hanky-panky going on here with Ruth. This is literally how it seems. This was actually uh, an ancient Near Eastern custom to uncover somebody's feet and to lie down. Ruth is sending a message and it, it is a virtuous message, but the message is, I want to be redeemed. I would like to be your wife. And in, in all the ways that we would understand it, Ruth has now proposed to Boaz, saying, hey, would you consider marrying me? And Boaz responds quite favorably. We find out that he's actually much older than Ruth. He's, he's probably Naomi's age. And so he is flattered that someone of Ruth's age would actually pay attention to him. And he is thrilled by her desire to marry him. He will do it. There's only one small problem, one more obstacle to overcome. While Boaz is a close enough relative to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, there is one, one person in Bethlehem who is closer still. And that relative, by the law, would have the first opportunity to play the role of redeemer. So Boaz goes about everything by the book. He wants to make sure that when he does this, he does this right. And so he approaches the other relative who could be potentially a redeemer, and he approaches him in front of witnesses in a public place. And he says, there is Naomi who has returned from Moab, and she needs to sell her land. Would you be willing to redeem that land for her? And the guy says, sure, I'll take some extra land. I love what Boaz does here. Do you notice how he doesn't talk about Ruth right away? He says, hey, there's this land you can have. And then he says, sure, I'll redeem it. Oh, by the way, by the way, part of, part of that package, there's this woman, Ruth, and she needs to, to, to have someone to marry. So that, that land comes with this woman who you need to be able to marry. And at that, the other relative box, and he says, you know what, I have my own marriages and my own inheritances all planned out. I can't marry another woman. I cannot do this for her. Therefore, I cannot redeem her. You do it, Boaz. And then they, they, they shake on it in a very ancient Near Eastern way. They actually exchanged sandals. You know, Here, have my sandal. We'll make this deal official. That's what they did at the time. Maybe similar if you watch a soccer game and at the end of the match they'll exchange jerseys. But uh, even though the custom seems a little bit weird or silly to us, it was a sign that this was official. That the other relative had said, I will not be the redeemer. Boaz, you can be the redeemer. And that last obstacle is taken away. Boaz and Ruth get married. And they have a son. And they name him Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Isn't that a cool story? What a good story. I didn't even mention iguanas once, so I'm not sure that was actually in there. It's a wonderful and compelling story of tragedy, of triumph, of, of God's providence, and of redemption. What does it mean for us? What lesson can we learn? And I would say that the central truth that we can apply to our lives today is to realize that God uses those that we cast out of our kingdoms to bring people into his. We need to remember who Ruth was. She was an outcast of society, a woman, a widow, a foreigner, even a Moabite. She had no social standing. She was pushed to the very fringes of society. She could not help herself. She was looked down on. She might have even been despised by others other than Boaz, who acted quite differently towards her. She was a marginalized person, yet God not only restored her, but he looked at someone who could not even help herself, and he used her to help all people for all time. The very, pers the very person that we push to the side of our society is the person that God will use to bring other people into his own kingdom. 
God did one thing in this story for Ruth, and he did one thing through Ruth. Firstly, he redeemed Ruth through Boaz. And in this story, we know that God took the initiative to help save Ruth from a, from a helpless situation. He, in his love and compassion and mercy, sent Boaz to redeem her. And in that, God showed a heart of compassion for someone on the margins. He showed that his heart bled for Naomi and for Ruth, for those who had gone through tragedy. And he wanted to help them. He desired to help them. He wanted to bring them from a place of bitterness to joy. That was God's heart in the story of Ruth. That is what he did for her. But God didn't stop there. He also did something through Ruth. He used her to redeem other people. Ruth was also used by God to bring joy to her mother-in-law, Naomi, through the birth of her child. At the very end of the story of Ruth, we find that uh, when Obed is born, Ruth and Boaz give him to, to Naomi to be the nurse. And all the women of the, of the village, the very same women who, who Naomi said, just call me bitterness, those very same women say, look, blessed is Naomi. She has a son. Blessed is Naomi. God used Ruth to take Naomi from a place of tragic bitterness to fulfillment and joy. From bitterness to blessedness through someone who had no social standing of her own. But God's picture of redemption was also so much larger than just Naomi and Ruth, as Ruth then was grafted into the lineage of David and ultimately the lineage of God's own son, Jesus Christ. What an example of God using an ordinary person to do extraordinary things. What an example of God using someone on the margins of society and bringing them to be an active uh, agent in bringing people into the kingdom of God. That is the story of Ruth. That is a story that we need to take um, some lessons from. Because the reality is there are still plenty of people on the margins of our society today. There are many people that we cast out of our social circles, that we push to the fringes. There's always a hierarchy. Students know this. I don't think there's any greater example of what a hierarchy is than a high school. Everybody knows where you stand in that pecking order. Am I right, students? Is that true? So I'm going to use some terms that are probably a bit dated because it's been a while since I've been in high school. But you have these different groups like the jocks or the nerds, right? The cheerleaders, the mean girls. Do you have any goths anymore? People that wear a lot of black makeup? Is that a thing? Is that kind of largely, to call them emo? I don't even know. Okay, so I'm just displaying my ignorance here in front of all the, of all the students. I'm sorry. Maybe Graham can fill me in. Do you know, do you know what it's like? No, no he's, uh, he doesn't know either, so he'll figure it out. But I always thought that you can tell what the social structure is in a high school based on how somebody walks down a crowded hallway. So when you're just there in grade nine and when you're, when you're into reading fantasy novels like I am, you stick as close to the side as you can and you duck out of the way and let those grade 12 football boys, they just pick a spot right down the middle and they're moving and everyone else parts for them, right? So you can tell where you stand. But it's just one small example. And I don't want us at all for a minute to buy into our society's lie that we don't have margins anymore, that we don't have people on the outside looking in. Because culture would tell us that we've made such great strides in the little person and championing their cause and making sure that everything's okay. Those, that's an old story. Things aren't the way that they used to be. Well, it's true. We've come a long way, and we may have made great strides with rights for women, but gender inequality is still an incredible reality, especially in the workplace. Women are not given the same opportunities as men. When they are, they're paid less than men. We have stats to prove it. 
There, there is gender inequality today. We have not fixed that problem. Now, gone are the days where you might have been able to be openly racist, yet racism is a problem that is still rampant everywhere in this world. You look at a, a few years ago when in the South they took down a, a statue of Robert E. Lee, and all of a sudden you had thousands of white supremacists coming out of the woodwork to protest that. Where did they come from? Well, the problem is we're still broken people. Racism is still a problem. We haven't fixed it yet. A number of years ago, we had the opportunity right here in Stonewall at New Life Church to host some Korean students for a teaching English program. It was a great opportunity. Do you know that those Korean students, on multiple occasions, biking around town, would have racist remarks hurled at them through the windows of cars? So lest we think that racism is a problem in the Deep South only, it is a reality here in Stonewall today, one of the least culturally diverse communities I can think of. We have not fixed this problem. There are those who are cast out because of their race. Those with disabilities are often kept to the fringes and presented fewer opportunities to be involved, whether it comes to schooling or work or living conditions. They are not given every chance that everybody else is. They are often on the margins. Economic inequality continues to get worse. If you can make an argument that these other things have gotten better, economic inequality has gotten worse, where the haves have more, the have-nots have less. And that gap, that divide, gets worse every single day and every single year. The haves and have-nots do not mix, and that isn't just looking at third world or developing countries. It happens right here in Stonewall and in the Interlake. Economic inequality is rampant in our culture and society, and we push people away to the edge. They don't belong. They're not one of us. So what is the message then that God has for us today? Knowing his heart for the marginalized, knowing that we still have people who are on the outside looking in, what does he have in store for us? Well, I'd say two things. One, you you probably find yourself in one of two camps. First, you might find yourself as someone who feels marginalized, as someone who has never quite fit in. You've had actual stories of someone pushing you to the side. And the lesson that God has for you today and the message that he has is that God loves you. You are loved. We're reminded of this truth in the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 3, where he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. We are all one in Christ Jesus. In God's kingdom, there are no margins. Only children of God. So if you feel pushed away, No, cling to the promise that you are loved. But for the majority of us, we're going to find ourselves in a position of status, of entitlement, of power. We're not necessarily those who are marginalized, but we have a lesson that we need to learn as well. We are the haves, not the have-nots. But it follows that if in the kingdom of God there are no people in the margins, then this should be true. It needs to be true that as the people of God, we live in such a way that proves this to be the reality. Not just a quote from the pulpit, but the truth of when we come together as people of God, that we truly are all one in Jesus Christ. So one of the questions I have for us, first, personally, do you reach out to the broken and needy? Do you reach out to those who have been pushed to the side? Are you one of those people who say there are no margins in the kingdom of God? And then together, as a church, 
Do we actively seek to accept and love those who our society marginalizes and treat them as full children of God? Because this has to be true. We know God's heart. There's no room for argument there. God loves all. Therefore, we need to love all. And it needs to be different here than it would be anywhere else. We need to love the marginalized because Jesus certainly did. There is a story found in the Gospel of John chapter 4, one of my favorite stories of Jesus and a Samaritan woman. We actually find a lot of similarities between that Samaritan woman and Ruth. She was a woman. She was not widowed, but she was remarried five times, which did not put her in good social standing. And then she was a foreigner. In fact, a Samaritan, someone who was despised by the Jews. She had those same three strikes against her. So then, if God feels a certain way towards Ruth, how does Jesus in the, in the New Testament feel towards the Samaritan woman? Well, we find that he's traveling through Samaria, Jesus and his disciples, and he gets thirsty. And he sits down for a drink, and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water from the well, and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And that that request, Jesus taking the initiative as a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman, was scandalous. It was the same type of action as Boaz inviting Ruth to his table. And, and the Samaritan woman knows this. He, she says, why are you speaking to me? You're supposed to ignore me. I'm less than nothing in comparison to you. She understands that, but Jesus doesn't push her away. In fact, he continues the conversation by saying, I can give you living water living water that can well up even into eternal life. Jesus is sharing the truth about himself with someone that has absolutely no social standing. And she is interested. She wants to know more. Where can I find this living water? And then Jesus continues his conversation by revealing his knowledge, his supernatural knowledge, of the fact that she has had five previous husbands and the man she's with currently is not her husband at all. And she's astounded. There is no way that Jesus, a stranger, could know this about her. So now she is convinced that you are a prophet. You are speaking words of truth. And then the finale of their conversation, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals to a marginalized woman that he is the Messiah. She is one of the first people to ever hear that from his lips. Jesus doesn't just reach out and love the marginalized. This is proof that he uses, God uses people that we push away as agents to draw people in. Because look at what the Samaritan woman does. She goes out and she tells her friends and her family and the town people, "I I have heard the Christ. I have heard the Messiah. I'm spreading the good news about Jesus. And John records in verse uh, 39 of chapter 4, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. Jesus didn't just love her. He didn't just accept her. He didn't just relate to her as a peer. He did all of those things, but in addition to that, he used somebody that we cast out of our kingdoms. He used her to bring other people into his, just like Ruth. That is the heart of God towards the marginalized. That is what we are called to follow as an example. And we know that God used Ruth in a mighty and powerful way, not just to bless Naomi, but to be grafted into the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. And from David all the way to Christ in that, in that lineage, God uses ordinary people, and when he does, he truly does accomplish extraordinary things. I'm sure Ruth had no idea that God had such 
a, a plan in mind for her when she married Boaz. I think she was just happy to know that she would be provided for. I think she was just thankful that she and Naomi kind of knew where their next meal was going to come from. But God said, not only am I doing that for you, but I'm going to use you to send my son into this world. And the story of Ruth gives us a beautiful picture of the gospel. Remember, Ruth found herself in a situation in which she could not save herself from. There was nothing she could do in her own power to get herself out of that mess. It wasn't just about trying harder or getting a new job or being nicer to people. She was helpless. In the same way, the Bible says that we are all slaves to sin in our, in our broken human nature. And no amount of trying harder, no amount of, of doing more good or being more disciplined can save us from that fate. Boaz was Ruth's redeemer. He reached down into her situation and chose to give her a new life. For us, Jesus Christ is our redeemer. He has looked upon our sad situation and chose to give up his life or to give us new life as well. Christ did this by coming down from heaven to walk on this earth, to live a perfect life, and then to die on the cross in forgiveness of our sins. He saves us when we cannot save ourselves. He did what was necessary so that now we can all be called children of God. So what an appropriate day to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as together we celebrate communion. Church, we have been redeemed. Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection is sufficient for us to have new life, to have this living water that wells up into eternal life that will never end, that will never die, that will never fade away. And all that is asked of us is to trust and to believe in Jesus. Many years ago, Ruth chose to forsake the false gods of her youth and to follow the one true God. So another question that we all have to ask ourselves is, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Redeemer? Have you looked to him to help you and save yourself from a sin that, that you just cannot save yourself from on your own? Trust in him. Serve him wherever you go, and he will be the Redeemer for you as well.